0: Join me in Disgraceland, available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock A Roll.
1: You know, I started playing with the Animal Collective. Then it just happened to be a, a synth that we had around. So we started just going into it internally, into the circuitry, and just completely bending or, or organ, organ sounds and just like, you know.
2: Wow, you're brave. I thought only Brian Eno was allowed to do that.
1: <laughs> yes.
2: We're live. Um, I'm in Berlin. Uh, Lowell uh, is in Los Angeles, and I'd like uh, to welcome David Portner, hailing. Uh, I think you're in North Carolina, right?
1: Yes, Asheville, outside of Asheville, North Carolina.
2: Well, welcome, and you are the founder of
3: Animal Collective, right? One of one of
1: them. You know, we kind of we we've all we've kind of all been been around we're all in there four of us
3: yeah you know i have to tell you that um you are responsible for me becoming um uh a father (laughs) well i'm gonna get i'm gonna get a a daughter-in-law in in a few weeks that's quite a responsibility (laughs) yes a lot of responsibility to put on your shoulders but my son and my future daughter-in-law just told me that that on their first date about eight years ago and he put on the album Sung Tongs, and he he's thought this is the litmus test. If she likes this, we've probably got you know we've got some kind of thing going, you know. <laughs>
1: that's, a, that's a tough <laughs> test there.
3: <laughs> yeah, and as it as it turned out, they're, they're getting married in a couple of weeks, and uh, they're going to play some of your music at the wedding. And uh, oh wow! So you know you're, you're responsible for that. So that's that's what I want. I want to say thank you. You know. Well,
1: you're welcome. Glad to glad to be of service. Hope it works out.
3: <laughs> oh, I'm sure it will. They've been together eight years, it's gonna work out.
2: It's all downhill from here now. You <laughs> see, we can't really beat that. How do we top that
3: one? I asked him as well, my son, so describe the music to me, you know, because I've listened. I've listened, and I know what I think about it, but I said I want to know what he got from it because he was really very, very uh very big fan. And he said it's like the Beach Boys with meets music concrete, meets can. Played on on cheap digital uh, samplers. So is that fair, or is that you? Ah, know?
1: uh, that's 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 a fair description. I would say. I would say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can't really hate on being compared to Can, the great Can. Loved them since high school.
3: Well, that's that's good because that's that's a connection that all three of us will have. Because uh, you know, for me personally, uh, Jackie Liebitz was you know a great great influence. You know, with his oh,
1: amazing yeah
3: play play monotonous you know jackie always said play monotonous and i took him at his word and and just you know played it round and round and, round and round and round and round and round and then played it some more around you know,
2: how did you come into what was going on like where you were growing up how did uh, rock find its way
1: in there? uh I, I i think just um probably from reading magazines you know music magazines and interviews with bands i, I was into at the time like uh that were playing, you know, kind of like 90s indie rock, Pavement, rock band, Sonic Youth. Um, they talked about those bands a lot, you know, Can Annoy, and uh, Noy, then, and then, yeah, uh, it was it was tough to find the records around Baltimore. I grew up in Baltimore City, or Baltimore, outside of Baltimore City, but Baltimore area. But that's where my music stores were to go to get records. And it was just sort of like, then, like, you know, you had to be kind of lucky to find a to find a can record or a noi record but then like right as i was ending high school kind of like the last couple of years all the you know kind of like the reissue boom kind of happened where everything just started getting reissued on CDs you know and like all this great all this great german psychedelic music just started
2: i was living in france i think at that point and i would go to fnac in toulouse fnac but it's like I'd always go to the same little section nobody else went to. You know, there was like the new the new French chart topping hit. <laughs> and then the, you know, the something from overseas that was the chart topping secondary. And then there's a corner over there, you know, and it, like, and every time I'd go back, there'd be fewer and fewer. Um, Who am I thinking of? The guys who were in Cluster. uh, Cluster. We're talking Eno and... Mobius. Mobius, yeah, I was going to say Mobius. Redelius, Mobius, you've got it, yeah. yeah. I just fell in love with their names as much as anything. And then the fact that he did everything on one little synth.
1: That if, if if that that kind of more of the electronic kind of electronic sounds influenced your bands at that at that time at that you know because there was I feel like both your bands uh, I'm talking Suzy and the Banshees and the Cure now <laughs> um, seemed to sh- shift you know kind of from more of a rocky kind of what I would consider like post-punky sound in the late '70s to like you know throwing in some more. You know, maybe not full on electronics, but, you know, like gravitating that sound.
2: I, th- I think we, we found out certainly in, in the Banshee's camp. Um, if you think of some of the, you know, the albums we just mentioned in Say, like, I mean, Severin came on the tour bus, which was a little bus uh, with a little bag of cassettes, a box of cassettes. And there was there's one called Can Opener, and I've never, ever seen it since it's, it's never listed it's not been re-released or and it was a cassette and it had moonshake and vitamin c and you know um and he also what else did he? Um, and we had like cuz craftwork kind of came out at the time you know there was radioactivity i think trans-europe express was a huge i suppose it felt like a huge hit but it was still really small. Right. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, and the only way I heard this stuff in the small town in northwest England was because I had a, a friend who was like maybe two years older. So he'd he'd left school and was working in the local glass factory. So he came home, home on a Friday with a huge wage packet, and on Saturday morning, we'd sort of like go go and buy some of those really weird albums you keep coming back with, and he'd come back with Faust, and. Amondule. Yeah, I love it all.
1: Tangerine Dream.
2: Tangerine Dream was kinda of, kinda of getting a bit kind of mm, guitar <laughs> But I me- remember the Faust album, the one that was like clear vinyl and a clear sleeve with a sort of um, you know, X ray of a hand. And we had no idea what this stuff would sound like. We purely on what they looked like. It was
1: <laughs> Right, totally. <laughs>
2: and Alex would come in and um, I'd say, Oh, we've got a new one. Because He had money because they were expensive. They were like, well, because
3: they, they were imports, right? So, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And it was just that was the opening. That was it, 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 wasn't as if we went off and then tried to copy that because we didn't start a band, we're too young. But we did kind of then listen for synthesizers, so I did anyway, in everything, yeah. And it didn't matter what it was in, if it had a synth in it that sounded a bit, then I'd just want to go and buy it, find it, you know
3: yeah there was there was always i think f- for the cure there was always interest in things that were a little more esoteric and if you have to remember back you know even bands like hawkwind had like you know rudimentary synths and and stuff going on.
2: That, that was the Hawkwind noise I just did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: You did. That's what it reminded me of. Yeah. That was Dick Mick. Dick Mick had his, uh, like, a, a white noise generator. That's all he played on stage. But so it went from there. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and it
2: went on. On and on and no, 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 no,
3: in the early '80s, you have to remember, though, there was a great revolution with, uh, like, you know, things like drum machines, which hadn't really been around in a great way before then. And we became fascinated with that. And it was part of my job. One of the reasons I changed from playing drums to playing keyboards and stuff was I wanted to pull that into the band, uh, and I wanted to drag the rest of them in because they were fairly luddite. You know, if you, I would say to them, if you can't hit it. Or spank it. You don't. You don't want to use it, do you? You know, and and they they'd sort of wander around with their clubs. You
2: know. Oh, perish the thought. Perish the thought.
3: Yeah, beating beating things. Like I bought I bought the first Apple Mac computer that, that they had in this one place. I remember it's called Stirling Sound in London. They only had two of them. And I bought one. And I think John Paul Jones bought the other, right?
2: <laughs> and um, so, yeah. You guys, you guys were earning money at a that. A bit. We were earning a few few bobs. Severin was always around your place, don't it? What
1: year that What year was that?
3: Oh, whenever it first came out, 84, something like that, maybe, the, the Mac. And, uh, you know, I spent an, a year trying to figure out how it worked. And then sort of took it back in pieces a year later and said, fix it for me, please. And uh, But, you know, that general knowledge of those things of what we could do with stuff was really the the reason for doing it. And then at that point, you know, fate intervened because we'd finished doing pornography, which was like, pornography is a bit earlier, but when we finished doing pornography, we went on tour and on pornography, we had the first drum machine we ever put on a a record. So we put um, Dr. Rhythm, whatever it was called. We put that on... The first track and when we went on tour we thought well we can't take the drum machine with us it's going to be too complicated to do that so we just we recorded it onto a reel to reel and we played the reel to reel live for some reason but i never remember quite why
1: dangerous dangerous business <laughs> it seems
3: like oh yeah yeah oh, very yeah. dangerous business yeah <laughs> and um so after that you know, we went on the big tour and then the band split up and there was only two of us it was just me and Robert. And we said, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, why don't I just concentrate all on the electronic stuff and bring that in? Because, you know, we can have the drums play by themselves and we can have, you know, stuff sequenced that makes, you know, tracks. And so we did some,
2: some records like that. Because that, that's how the Banshees really went. when I joined them. They were just two. So Susie and Severin had been in, like, chapels in London, the publisher. They'd been in their little demo room. And everything was with like a, a roll and compu rhythm. Something like that anyway. And they all that little whistle, it went <laughs> like a hi hat sound but mm. not quite. Like <laughs> yeah. like, like a cha cha with a samba or something or a rumba, you know. So they'd just mix up these presets. So when I came in there were a lot of like tracks and red light was on kaleidoscope and that's just a, a precursor really to you know the, there was a lot of that sound around with early Depeche and Yazoo and you know soft cell who we hooked up with Mark Holman pretty quick as soon as he arrived in London we abducted him echo and the echo and the bunnyman Oh, uh,
1: did drum machine stuff back then
2: too, right? Yeah, well, there was Echo and the Bunnymen in up in Eric's, in, and uh, across on the other stage, from across the other side of the Mersey, were Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. They may not have had a reel to reel, but I think Echo and the Bunnymen did. I think that was Echo. And um, when I left Liverpool, I gave I gave um, Les Pattinson, I think, when I left Liverpool, I gave him a symbol. I said, when you get a drummer, give him this. It was crap symbol, and. Um, but that was a kind of strange thing there were some, if you like bands that kind of kept to that, if you like, vision of the new future and then there were, I don't know how it is we sort of tried to incorporate a different aspect, I don't know what it was, maybe it's our, our roots in bands or the need, you know, it was it's a strange thing I always wondered why we didn't keep it simple as, as a two, three piece thing <laughs>
3: Budget Budgie started when the punk revolution happened and it really was, was very important to start in the band. So that attitude was still going on when we came to put more of the electronic stuff in, we wanted we wanted to use them, but we wanted to use it in a way that was different and maybe less precious. You know, it, it wasn't until a bit later when everybody bought a synclavier clavier and, you know, all these highly expensive electronics to make things. I, I wasn't interested in making things sound, like the original instrument I didn't want to play a, a, a cello so it sounded exactly like a cello and you could why wouldn't I just ask a cello player to come and do it uh, I wanted to make sounds that were different and unique in their own way and that's that's really what I enjoy it's actually it's still what I enjoy making things that sound you know a lot different but there's a lot more support for it nowadays yeah you know? how about yourself how did you come to like like use yeah, you know, old digital samplers, cheap digital samplers. What was it inherent in that for you that you liked?
1: Well, I, I think uh, at first it was just sort of like whatever I could get or whatever I had around. You know what I mean? To make sound. I mean, a lot of yeah, making crazy or or, or more different kind of sounds was 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 more about like not having a lot to use maybe and needing to you know improvise in a certain sense. Like if you didn't have a snare maybe you'd use like a box or a plate or something like that and i think like maybe we started you know playing together as a band that way you know just kind of improvising and and using different things we didn't have a lot of stuff around that's how we got into just like you know into being like oh let's use that instead for a for a sound or we started getting interested in yeah taking regular instruments like one of the the first synth i ever had was a dx-27 I think my uh uh a friend of my brothers was getting rid of it and uh so I just took it on and that's sort of I was I played piano growing up and I kinda of wanted to just mess around with it. And so I just had it then to place you know, just to play synth lines and stuff on it. But when, you know, I started playing with the Animal Collective, then it just happened to be a, a synth that we had around so we started just going into it internally into the circuitry and just completely bending or or organ organ sounds and just like, you know.
2: Wow, you're brave. I thought only Brian Eno <laughs> was allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yes. Well, I was going to say, you know, when you said on oh, like you know the DX, you know, 20, I was thinking of like the DX7 which was the most impossibly difficult synth the program because it was always on that tiny little screen with these really abstract codes to program it. And there was a period there at the beginning of like uh, the 80s where you'd listen to records and pick out the patch that they'd used on on the DX7. Like, you know, was it the shakuhachi or the Kyoto or Koto or whatever? Because nobody could actually change them at all. So they all sounded the same. So it was easy to pick out, you know, what patch somebody had used on the record. But you're talking about going in and circuit bending stuff I mean, I know people that do it now, but it's still out of my my whole league. My imagination. I, I'm going to get inside with the circuitry and change things. What what made you do that?
1: Just to get different sounds. We kind of we appreciated like a, a broken kind of sound, if to, to put it the best way I can, you know. And uh, yeah, it just seemed a little bit more like to to us that was kind of like the future of of, of music, kind of like starting and coming up you know we're talking about can and you know yeah. what what you guys yeah. your guys bands and those that era bands if we're talking about gear though i wanted to t- uh i just thought you know maybe yeah it'd be cool for me to uh bring up the flanger because yeah I feel like- yeah <laughs> <laughs> you both made records that have flanger that has really you know inspired me in terms of sounds on a record
3: and stuff like that. I don't know. Well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I I think for me, I I think about that, and I remember when you know we started getting the flanger, but it was always like that. One of the first albums I ever had was was Axis Boulders Love, you know, Hendrix, and there's a brilliant bit at the end of that when Mitch Mitchell's playing the drums, and they just use tape flanging, and it and it. When I was like. 13 listening to that it was that was like the, the orgasmic moment in the whole record where he does his big fill and suddenly it just flanges into nowhere and and i loved it so i guess you know me and me and robert always liked hendrix so i guess that's part of the reason it started you know plus you know for the first time you didn't have to have very expensive machinery you could you could use those little pedals in fact i'm sure that that Robert still uses half of them you know but um (laughs) he he probably owns the factory now but the other thing when you're talking about keyboards for a long time a very signature sound of the cure was the Selena string machine which was just you know so I think it's Italian and it only makes one sound you know it doesn't it's like this big box that that makes maybe some string sounds and, and a little brass sound and but we use that on everything you know on everything
2: it was that's, great. that's very very italian it's just one sound but it's it's but it's beautiful
3: yes yeah, beautiful one beautiful sound and i tried later on i had like all this expensive software from emulator because i was talking to them before they bought out you know like the e3 or something and they would send me like different models and stuff and i had the software that i was trying to capture i was trying to resample the selena so that i could Use it on stage with a a sampler and not have to take this big box with me everywhere. I could never get quite the artifacts were in that sound. I could never quite capture them all and and make it sound, you know, convincing. So we still had to take that big box everywhere with us.
2: (laughs) Who made the Selena? Do you remember?
3: Um, ARP. I mean, I may have lost my mind completely thinking it's Italian, but I think it's Italian for some reason. Ah, I found the
2: Selena page. I was completely wrong. It wasn't Italian, it was Dutch. I want it to be Italian. Uh, the, the Italians probably made one then, then they sold the idea to the Dutch. Yeah.
3: And um, it had six tones violin, viola, trumpet, horn, cello, and contrabass. And that was it. In this big box. And I think I actually might even have a sample. name that song. It's the sound of just like heaven, I think.
1: (laughs) Would you run into gear like that, breaking a lot on tour, having equipment problems?
3: Um, You know, we used to have, at one point, we used to have a a load of uh, Ensonic Mirages, which were very plasticky, cheap samplers right and you know the keyboard was probably you know it looked like it was like made from the top of milk bottles or something and um, I would regularly spill vast amounts of beer inside the keyboard while we were playing live and my, my tech would have to turn it upside down and dry it out with the hairdryer and things and the hard drive would be falling out the side because I dropped it on the ground and that thing went on forever and ever I loved that so yeah, we had things that were, were breaking. I think that all changed later on where it got a bit more uh, specific, I think. Oh, yeah, so David, the other thing that I had that did used to get broken a lot was the SYN-Air snare, um, like synth drum, because the, the first ones were just like a metal box with a, a speaker uh, screwed to the bottom of the surface that you hit. So, you know, it would work the reverse way around. So you hit the top, the speaker would vibrate, and then it would go into this little module that produced some kind of white noise. But, of course, you know, after about two weeks or probably about two days with my uh, compatriot here, if you're hitting them, they just disintegrated because, you know, they they weren't meant to, you know, be hit that hard. You know?
2: Which ones were they? Were they the yellow things?
3: No, black. Black with lots of knobs around the side and a little piece of rubber on the top. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Shall I find the synair here? I've probably got a sample of <laughs> <like> that
2: too. <laughs> so, Animal Collective, uh, you are also you do individual projects, or certainly you do now. Was it always that way? Yeah, I mean, it kind
1: of started as individual projects of, of sorts, just sort of like for for friends. Yeah, just kind of trading musical ideas and playing with each other, kind of play music. You know, like in certain. Two of us would play together, like pretty much how we do it now, you know, just kind of like a pastime, you know, and and, when we we were in school, you know, when we started, so and also in in different places uh, early on. So made it hard for us all to play together all the time. So, yeah, we kind of just came into writing our own music um, individually and then, you know, we would take the time to come together and and uh try you know making it like a a full force thing um in new york kind of early on just you know but just with uh jobs and and you know all the other stuff going on it just it just we found it easier to just kind of make it more relaxed and and just kind of yeah whoever wants whoever wants to be there I
2: was going to say is that do you think that's a kind of a a secret to the longevity of it you know
1: yeah I mean my, my one bandmate and I we worked together at the record store then we would go to practice and we lived together and it was just too much time around each other after a while so yeah it just seemed to work better for us if there was more a little bit more distance you know
3: I wanted to ask you a question. So we've talked to, uh, Mac who lives out in there with on, from super chunk. He lives out in uh, North Carolina. He told us the main reason he lives there was because you could have a quality of life that was reasonable and you could get a place to play for your band as well. You could have a place to rehearse. You could have a place to put a studio. It wasn't like, like he started off going into New York. And of course it was way too expensive to exist there as a band doing things. So, I think it's getting harder and harder because, like, when me and Budgie were little boys, well, not little boys, but we were teenagers and stuff, but we started touring around, and especially like in America. In the early 80s, you know, the cure could make it work, like in a a tour bus and play four or five shows a week. And if we played some colleges who usually had some money to pay you, um, you could actually have a life. You could actually do it as your full. You know that would be your whole profession to do. I don't know if that's that possible anymore. You know because it's just so expensive to get around, and there's no income from records anymore and stuff. You know what do you think?
1: Yeah, and then it's a lot more. It's a lot more competitive now too. I mean, like not the not that the competition is real, but I mean there's just so many bands. Yeah. Not that there weren't a lot of bands. You know, back when y'all were touring like that, like, but I mean. There's a lot of competition to get get dates at venues, and so yeah, there's a lot there's a lot more complicating everything, I guess, and you can't just. Oh, the
3: best thing I liked in that was your phrase, like, "Not that the competition's real." That's the best attitude ever. That's great. <laughs> yeah. That's what we always thought. Hey, there's plenty of competition, but it's it's not real. You know, we're just gonna. I mean, do you think that's due to the fact that everybody could hear everything all the time because of the internet, or, or what is it?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, and I think also, like I was saying before, when I started getting into a lot of obscure stuff or, you know, stuff that at one time was maybe harder to find, it was just because, yeah, yeah. suddenly things just started becoming a lot more available. And that was, you know, the, there was everything getting reissued for a while. And then, yeah, the internet and just being able to. Upload stuff onto onto the onto the web and and uh, yeah yeah all that get free music and I mean it, it, as much as it's hurt the music industry it's it also helped a lot in the way of just spreading music around and and influencing you know music that's happening so it's yeah it's interesting for sure I don't
3: I don't know how do you how do you feel about it completely because I have like this love hate thing about the internet on one hand I think it's like wonderful that it's you know managed to get you know information worldwide and on the other hand I think it's like you know out of the devil's bosom because it is going to destroy us all you know
2: devil's loins
3: (laughs) devil's loins I wasn't going to say that but you've said it for (laughs) me
2: I had to uh...
1: I mean I I think it's a lot too much it's just too much you know and it's a lot of I, I think you can limit yourself you know to how much of it you access and I think that's maybe the key of finding the balance of you know, I feel like I kind of grew up half-half. You know, like just before the boom was, you know, the internet boom. So I spent a lot of my early life, you know, not, you know, I don't, I don't relate to it in that way. I, uh, you know, when we went on tours, and it was yeah, it was just sort of like still putting up flyers. I, you know, when when we would play around New York, I'd put up flyers around all the all the music stores in New York, and, and that kind of thing. And that's yes. that's how we came to be. And that, I mean, that's how I got into. That's how I got individual
3: art. You're a real musician. <laughs> no, no, it's true, it's true though. You know, people, people say, Well, you know, I put it on my Instagram and uh, did it with the Facebook. I'm like, What? We had to go into college town to go into the local record store and hand out flyers, tell them that we're playing tonight at the university or whatever, and that you know, come back, little boy, when you've done real work. You know, that's what I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's. It's just hard, whatever way you look at it. I think, but um,
2: so what is it about North Carolina? Do you have a like? Was it a sympathetic governor or something? Uh,
1: of sorts. I mean, for for me, I mean, Asheville in particular, the city is is a bit is a bit of an oasis, you know. I feel like just in terms of its uh, you know liberal uh, atmosphere, that kind of thing, you know. I mean, for me, like I just I because I, I lived in LA just before uh, living here, and then uh, New York for thirteen years before that, and I I just kind of got over living in a big, a large city, you know, and just wanted to get back to the woods and I kind of grew up closer to woods and, you know, I don't know, just, just, yeah, just, and and the quality of life, like Max said, is, is definitely better. I I think even in places like Asheville now, especially post 2020, it's just, uh, it's, it's tough you know what I mean you can't you can't even like it's hard to even get a like a practice space around here you know and be able to afford it plus like have a house and that kind of thing so yeah it's not yeah it's kind of getting hard everywhere
3: just before the pandemic shut everything down I I went on I went on tour with my first book Then I kind of did it like the first cure tours. So I sort of went to all the small towns and small places and just, you know, anywhere that had a record store or a bookstore, I would go and, and do, do an event for my book. And, um, one of the places I went, I, I was talking to a guy, actually he's the manager of the flaming lips and he has a class out there at uh, college out in uh, Oklahoma city. So I went there and the Flaming Lips. You know, Oklahoma City is not really that expensive, right, to to, to live. So they have a whole city block. <laughs> they have a whole city block as their mm-hmm. rehearsal space and things. And I went down there to see them and uh, see Wayne and things. And uh, it's like, it's ridiculous. It's like, you know, if, if you had to buy that, if you had to even rent it in in Los Angeles, I, mean, I don't think you could buy it. I, I think it would be, you know, beyond, you know, right, beyond yeah. <laughs> any, anybody's reason to be able to buy a city block. But if you had to rent it, it would be, you know, it'd be millions, you know, just for the for a couple of weeks or something. I exaggerate, but you get my meaning. It's like, you know, I suppose, you know, these little outposts, and I, I'm not saying Asheville's a little outpost, because I know it's not, but, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. It, 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 it's, really, it's small.
1: I mean, it is small.
3: It's small. Yeah, Oklahoma City definitely had its... Um, Day as, as a little outpost because I arrived there at seven o'clock in the evening on the plane and walked in this huge airport, and there was nobody nobody about everybody that worked there had gone home. He said, If there's no flights, you know, going out, everybody just goes home. You know? So there was nobody in the airport
2: at all. Ah, see, if you'd gone there in 1800, you know, Asheville, you'd, <laughs> 38 people there'd been you and 38 others that have been like no no queue at the airport whatsoever no plane <laughs> no no line
3: to get on anything yeah yeah you know they have a they have a kind of burgeoning art scene there though which is you know heartening there are places you know that's what i like about america you can go into the middle of nowhere be driving for 10 hours and then suddenly you come across an oasis you know and i imagine Asheville it's a bit like that so yeah or or
1: definitely was at one time i think it's definitely grown a lot but they're they're popping up all over the place in the u.s for sure
3: yeah which is good yeah i like that i like the idea of that that makes me feel um hopeful you know my uh my niece goes to school out in iowa you know and uh i went to visit her a couple of years ago we were there and uh, what was it last year and in the middle of the afternoon, we're in the, the center of town, you know, and it's like it's like any college town that I'd ever been to, you know, it has the same uh, restaurants and coffee shop and all this stuff and that. And I started to think, I started to feel really weird, you know, I was like, it's the middle of the afternoon, why do I feel really weird? And it's like, because it was deja vu, you know? like every gig that I'd ever played in the college towns, you know, that was the time that I would be in town in the middle of the afternoon, getting ready, you know before sound check go around and to local record store and give them some flyers and stuff and say hey we're playing tonight and uh, come and come and see us so it was
2: really it was a
3: very strange time travel experience for me you know
2: this is bizarre i think um robert moog yeah the mr moog the man born in Asheville. Yeah, the Mo, yeah, the Moog factory is here. The Moog it's factory still there? Is here. Okay, now I feel a pilgrimage
3: coming. Oh out yeah, we well, could do do a pilgrimage there, and then we'll take the other one up to the other place for Mister Buechler on the west coast, right? You know, he he was, uh, I'm yeah, okay, I'm going to ask you that question then. Oh look out! Watch out! The fingers pointing. Moog or Buechler, You know, yes or no? You know, Moog or Buechler.
1: Oh, I I I like both. I like both.
3: You like both? Okay, okay. So, which, which is goth?
1: Which is goth? I would say. Well, I mean, you 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 tell me. I don't know. Do you do? You all use Moogs? Do you have you used smoke? Like, I would say moog. Maybe.
3: Oh, okay. I'd say I'd say
2: the bukla's goth.
1: Oh, you'd say bukla's goth. I, I don't know.
2: <laughs> it seems a little more specialized. Miss, in the the bugler. The bukla, yeah, the bukla. I, I yeah, only remember. came across it recently. Um, my friend was like kind of collecting them, and he had one live on the road, and it was full of like you know. Bits of solder that were too bulky, and you know. it's
3: got stuff to plug in. Uh, what I liked about it was when they first made it, it didn't have any uh manual or any uh you know signs what things were on the faceplates. It was like it was an alchemist's sort of dream, you had to sort of just plug things in and hope that something worked. And that to me is fascinating, you know. And uh, Susan Cenzani, who we who we love, who who. Wrote the quotes that we use all the time. That's what she used. She was like the first person to kind of sort of have one play it for a long time. You know.
2: So.
1: Yeah, I have a I have a music easel. It's a it's pretty cool to play. But yeah, it's 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 tough. It's difficult and hard to take. I took it on one one record tour, and but I don't think I would want to tour with it so much. That stuff's very precarious.
2: Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wild. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com And you can reach us on Instagram
3: and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official Twitter at Cure Creatures
2: To find more of the best music podcasts visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter
3: Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2023